Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. It's mid-August, and we are nearing the end of our special summer season. Next week, we begin our two-part series on the Cross Florida State Canal and the Cross Florida Greenway. With the season coming to an end, I wanted to circle back to a few stories that were left on the cutting room floor. Unusual little tales that I couldn't quite fit into the episode. All of these stories are parallels to episodes that we've talked about this season. Sort of alternate histories to the stories we've talked about so far. And the first story that we're going to be talking about this week includes kind of a familiar tune. If you've listened to the first episode of this season, I'm sure that you are sick of hearing it already, but it is O Tannenbaum. It has made yet another appearance in the Wait 5 Minutes canon. That is because, for some reason I cannot fathom, it is one of the most used tunes for anthems around the world. We talked about a few of those uses in our Season 4 premiere. There is the original version, of course, O Christmas Tree or O Tannenbaum. There's Maryland to My Maryland, which is a pro-Confederate anthem for the state of Maryland. Which, by the way, since that episode aired, state legislators in Maryland have remounted efforts to remove the state song from its position as state anthem. There is also Florida's former state song, Florida, My Florida, which is kind of an odd little anthem to our state and our nature. However, Maryland and Florida are not the only two regions that have O. Tannenbaum's tune as part of their anthem. Those two states are in fact part of a very large club. Michigan, for example. Their official state song is called My Michigan, a jaunty little tune composed in 1933 by a duo named Giles Cavanaugh and O'Reilly Clint. It came to be Michigan's official state song in 1937. It has been 80 years since then, and the song is rarely celebrated or performed. That is because the writers of the song did not or could not sell the rights to the state of Michigan. This meant that any singing of the song would technically incur a royalty from whoever performs it. So I'd love to play it for you here, but alas. Most folks instead know the much more popular song with a startlingly similar name. It's called Michigan, My Michigan. Yes, that is the name. Here's a bit of it sung by Randall Lee. Michigan, my Michigan, thy lake-bound shores I long to see. Michigan, my Michigan, from Saginaw's tall... The original version was written by a woman named Winifred Lee Brent Leister, who composed it in 1862 to honor a recent battle in the Civil War, the Battle of Fredericksburg. Her husband was a physician who served in the Union Army, and to honor other Michigan residents who served in the war, she wrote out lyrics to O. Tannenbaum honoring her state. Whether or not she was inspired by Maryland, my Maryland is still unclear. The lyrics were rewritten two separate times in 1886 and in 1902 to reflect changing tides in Michigan. The original version was a plea for peace in wartime, but by 1902, the lyrics became a solemn adoration of the Great Lake State. 
It is endlessly better known than the official state song, and in 2003, a plan was made to have it officially replaced. But that failed. To this day, the unsingable state song remains. Hop across Illinois from Michigan, and you're in the fourth and final state that bears O Tannenbaum as the state song. It's Iowa. Here's a bit. It's called The Song of Iowa. There's a region in Canada called Labrador in the far northeastern reaches of the country. The song to honor Labrador was written in 1927 as a way to unite the population of the region around the culture. The song is just another version of O Tannenbaum. There is a song used by the Boy Scouts set to the tune, and a song used by the Girl Scouts, and three separate college alma maters. In Sweden, the children while riding the bus will sing a version of the tune that celebrates their chauffeur, the bus driver. I cannot even begin to understand why this tune spreads so widely into so many places and is used by so many different organizations. And there's no organization that has quite so aligned themselves with their version of the song as the Socialist Parties of Europe. For them, this simple tune is not a Christmas carol or a state anthem. Rather, it is the labor anthem called the Red Flag. Officially, the Labour Party of Britain has rallied around this song since 1900. It faced a downturn at the beginning of the 21st century under Prime Minister Tony Blair, but with the recent rise in popularity for British politicians in the Labour Party such as Jeremy Corbyn, the song has made a comeback. The original version was written in 1889 by Irish writer Jim Connell, who was inspired by a strike led by dock workers at the same time. He sent it to the local paper and it caught popularity around the country. It spread around the globe in a matter of years. Laborers everywhere, including here in America, grew increasingly interested in the song and its messaging of labor's vitality and of scorning the rich. What makes this even more interesting is that the original version of the Red Flag was meant to be sung to a different tune, but a journalist named Adolphe Smith Headingley set the lyrics to O Tenenbaum. It's unclear whether or not Headingley chose the tune because of O Tannenbaum or if he was actually copying the popular American song, Maryland, My Maryland. Now here's my question, one that I may never get the answer to. It's actually the reason why I didn't tell you all this in the first episode of the season. The Red Flag is a popular socialist song in Britain and it quickly spread to America where laborers picked it up and used it as a rallying cry, right? Would American states like Florida want the association of a socialist anthem related to their state song, especially at the beginning of the 20th century? I'm not the first to think that this could be an explanation as to why Florida My Florida was abandoned in the first place. Now we have Old Folks at Home, a racist minstrel show song. I wish that we could go back in time and find out precisely why the politicians wanted to change out Florida My Florida, but we may never know for sure. Until then, we will always have the 
ever catchy and far overused, oh, Tannenbaum. The second tale of the day involves bread, chickens, and my good pal, Gabrielle Khaleesi from the Tampa Bay Times. We just dealt with so many chickens. We took giant baguettes and swung them in the air and screamed at some chickens and th- so that they would leave us alone. We met up for a socially distanced lunch in Ybor City. Last month, we both wrote about Ybor City's industries at the same time. I wrote about beer and breweries. She wrote about bread and bakeries. We're often writing things in parallel on accident, but these ones were very similar. So I thought, why not enjoy some of the bread that she talked about and chat all things Ebor with someone who grew up in the area. There were loud chickens and a consistent trolley car rumbling by, which made it a bit difficult, but we found a spot to share stories of this amazing little city and the things it has created. Tell me about tell me about Ebor. You grew up in Tampa. You've been around Ebor a lot. Tell me like about Ebor's like place in your life. It's a very special place. Um, I live in St. Pete right now, but every time I cross the bridge and go to Ebor, it really feels like I'm going on a little vacation to somewhere else. Everything is brick and lovely and weird. And, and when I say lovely, I mean like just the the vibe of being in a place that has such its own sense of self. It's kind of gritty. It's weird you can't have a conversation without getting interrupted by a screaming chicken rooster um and that's just part of it i don't know it's it's a really cool place there is something so beautiful about these old brick buildings and and seeing the old signs what used to be there and you can walk past people rolling cigars in the window and there's all these fantastic restaurants and super cool bars to go to when there's no pandemic um but then (laughs) it is you, you know honestly like a big mess especially at night I right know. i mean we both have been the reason I, the reason I, I wanted to talk to you about this was you and i often are accidentally writing things in parallel like we're writing similar stuff at the same time like we did tampa obviously it's stuff that's like happening like we wrote about the state fair at the same time because the state fair was happening but like we also i you were like i'm writing about this bread thing and i was like i'm writing about beer thing in Ebor as well so tell me about the the beer or the beer the bread company that you wrote about for the times well i was like nick is writing about liquid bread so i'm gonna write about solid bread gross sorry <laughs> i love beer as described as liquid bread it's I think so, you said that to me before so nasty um no but so la segunda bakery is an iconic business it is one of the oldest bakeries that's still operating uh consistently in this country it is not the oldest bakery in tampa bay um alessi bakery is a couple years older than it and it is also delicious and good um but what makes la segunda so special is just the way that they bake their bread there's a lot of sort of mystery surrounding the way that they um put this palm leaf pressed into the top of each loaf of bread i mean the so they're actually, this is not the, the first and only bakery that this family has had, but the La Segunda name has been around for 105 years. The Moray family has been baking bread here for over a century, um, and La Segunda, it's the second. So there are actually three bakeries, um, and it all traces back to Juan Moray, and so he was a Spaniard, 
and he was from the Catalonia region, comes to Cuba to fight in the Spanish-American War. While he's in Cuba, he figures out how to make this delicious Cuban bread, and he's like, sick, great, awesome, I'm gonna go to Florida and make this bread. That's not what he said, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> he said sick, it's, it's, it's in historical record that he went sick. I'm, gonna go I'm sorry! <laughs> I just had a lot of bread, Nick, I'm like very relaxed. Um, I'm a little fatigued after fighting the chickens. So, you know, he joins this co-op of bakers and cigar makers, and he opens three bakeries. So the first is La Primera, and that does not exist because it burned down in the 1950s. Then there is La Tercera, which is the third, and that one goes out of business, but La Segunda's been around. They did change buildings, but they've been in the current building in Ybor for so long. And this building still has the original brick ovens. I mean, they do upgrade equipment and stuff, but they still bake it the same traditional way no air conditioning it is hot as blazes and if you can imagine now they're all wearing masks and trying to bake and it's very very hot it filled this very important purpose because back when the bakery first opened 105 years ago um ebor was very much a cigar town and there was a lot of people working in the cigar factories and bread was a way of life especially cuban bread we had a wonderful melting pot but for some reason cuban bread just was king and a lot of places were around, you know, to, to, to bake bread. And the way that it was done was they would bake the bread and then they would have like a horse and carriage and they would deliver the bread to you on bread hooks. You know, you, where your doorbell is today, you'd have a little hook. You would wake up, poke your head out the window, grab your bread. And the, the cool thing about La Segunda is they make these three foot long loaves of bread. It's just, you feel so powerful walking out of the bakery with that. So I spoke with Andy Hughes, one of my favorite historians over at USF Special Collections. And he actually wrote a chapter in his book about the Columbia restaurant, all about La Segunda and their bread. And so he kind of just painted this picture for me of what it must have been like back then when they were baking the bread. Um, you know, all those many, many years ago. And it's just really like quaint and, and lovely to think about going back in time and what that must have been like. Um, and so Cuban bread was just such an important part of the whole day. I mean, you have your traditional Cuban breakfast, you, you gotta go to work, so you're not gonna have like a whole big meal, but you'd have your cafe con leche and you'd have your Cuban bread and butter as toast. And then at lunch, you're gonna have sandwiches and you're maybe gonna have like some beans and rice throughout the day so you're gonna have bread on the side and it's just you're constantly eating bread which is very good because by the end of the day this bread is kind of done the the kind of tricky thing about this cuban bread is it gets hard and so unless you freeze it and then thaw it out or, or bake it again you're gonna have like stale bread and you're gonna have to make bread crumbs or, or bread pudding or something like that um, but it didn't really matter because it was such a big part of the day that you would finish it by the time the day was over anyway. So, so the, the thing also that I mentioned before that makes this bread so special is that palm leaf. They have a special supplier that brings the palm leaves to them because they, they bake 20,000 loaves of bread a day. If, you know, pre-pandemic, they're still baking a lot of bread because um, they do ship across the country as far as Alaska. Alaskan bread. Alaskan bread. Um, but it, it has slowed down with, with coronavirus just because like, the restaurants that they're bringing the bread to and the stores that they're bringing the bread to like business has changed and um so it is very tricky but in normal times they have someone come like every other day with the palm leaves because they go through so many they press them on the top of the loaves and then um that creates that nice little crease on the top I, when you were eating the bread you said why is there this palm leaf i needed to know, need to know why there was a palm leaf well they have the like the super old brick ovens and the the great thing about them is is the way that they bake the bread but they are kind of uneven in the way that they bake mm. and so the nice thing about the leaf is you can kind of peek in there and you can see like is it crisped up 
Mm. Uh, is, is it like changed in color or consistency? And if you notice that the leaf is kind of burning, then you're like, okay, maybe it's time for me to like shift the bread around. Mm. It's just simple and good. It's like chewy and it's fluffy. And if you toast it, it gets this wonderful little crumb mm. and you break into it and it just makes a big mess, but it's glorious. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you ever go to like the Columbia restaurant or any of these nice restaurants, they have someone coming around scraping the crumbs of the La Saguna bread off the table. And it is just, it's a mood. You get the crumbs everywhere and that's okay. That's that's part of the whole deal. It's kind of part of the charm. And if you're getting crumbs, it's because you're probably ripping off a piece to hand to someone with you. You're sharing it. You're eating three feet of bread together. And I don't think that there's anything more beautiful than that. Which brings me to my last tale that I want to share with you today. It concerns a legendary figure, the dreaded pirate of Florida, Jose Gaspar. If you are a resident of Tampa and her surrounding towns, you've certainly heard the name. If you haven't, maybe you know the holiday that celebrates Gaspar and his myth called Gasparilla. I asked Gabrielle, a lifelong Tampa resident, to tell me a little bit about Gasparilla as I, unfortunately, have never attended. Her response surprised me. You've been to Gasparilla, yes? Have you? No, You've no. Never been to Gasparilla. Never been to Gasparilla. Me neither. But, but, but that's on. But you, that feels like you should. I know I should go, but I don't like large crowds of people, sexism, or drunk people. <laughs> and that's what a lot of Gasparilla is. <laughs> like, hear me out. Okay, some of my favorite things. Pirates costumes fanfare but then you contrast that with like the most worst like parts of it which is like i said (laughs) drunk people sexism and crowds the triumvirate it is a massive chaotic time along tampa bay that conquers the city for a weekend next year if everything goes according to plan gasparilla in 2021 will flow directly into the super bowl which will be played in raymond james stadium that year That is going to be quite a time. But the origins of the festival are related to the man, Jose Gaspar. Though he is short in stature, he is a massive figure in Florida, one whose name has somehow never been mentioned on this show before. I'm not sure how Gaspar has totally slipped by all of the stories we've discussed in the last two years, but better late than never, I suppose. Maybe we'll talk about pirates a lot more in year three. What do you know about Gaspar? I know that he's not real. I know that it's a lie, and I know that to this day there's still treasure hunters that go looking for his treasure every weekend. It's like a club. Mm-hmm. Jose Gaspar was born in 1756 in Spain, a critical figure under King Charles III. As is often the case with figures that rise to the level of myth, the truth about Gaspar's origins are often misconstrued. One version of his rise reads like a 1930s pirate movie. Gaspar became a sailor at a young age, saved royalty in the Caribbean, seduced women through his travels, and was eventually accused of stealing the Spanish crown jewels. He fled with a group of convicts and became a legendary pirate. The likely reality is that Gaspar, nearly 30, became a lieutenant in the Spanish fleet where he was defeated by the English navy, Reeling from pain and shame, he convinced a band of his fellow sailors to leave the Spanish service and become pirates under his command. 
Whatever the truth is, Gaspar became the last of the buccaneers and sailed the coast of Florida for nearly 40 years, plundering and pillaging those who came into his path. Much of this myth was perpetuated in the 1900s by a man named Edwin D. Lambright, a writer who compiled a tome of Gaspar's stories and tweaked the details to make them at least appear more historically accurate. Lambright used several false or shady sources to compile his information, including a supposed diary of Gaspar that was saved by Gaspar's second, a man named Rodrigo Lopez. Here's the catch. Rodrigo Lopez does not and has not ever existed. But his relationship with the island of Sanibel somehow lives on. Sanibel, as you may have heard in our two-year anniversary episode, was likely named after Queen Isabella, the reigning queen of Spain, when Ponce de Leon landed on Sanibel for the first time. On the maps, it was called Santa Isabella, which was shortened to San Ibel and now Sanibel. But the legend of Gasparilla says that Gaspar's II, the fictional Rodrigo Lopez, is why Sanibel bears that name. You see, Lopez was in love with a woman back in Spain. When Lopez took off with Gaspar, he left his love behind. As he sailed the seas, he longed for his beloved Sanibel, and one day, Lopez asked Gaspar to have Sanibel sent to Florida so they could finally be together. In the end, Lopez and Sanibel settled on an island on the Gulf Coast, and Gaspar entrusted his diary to his friend. They named the island after Lopez's love. Lopez then gave that diary to his wife, Sanibel, who blabbed about the diary until it was taken from them and kept in the Spanish archives until it was eventually given to Lambright. That is not a true story by any stretch of the imagination. Sanibel supposedly received its name from that fabled woman. Captiva, the sister island of Sanibel to the north, was apparently so named since Gaspar would often keep his kidnapped prisoners there. He would hold them for ransom against his enemies and would use Captiva as a secluded hideout. What's more is there is an island just a few miles north of Captiva and Sanibel along the same barrier that is named Gasparilla Island. According to the myth of Jose Gaspar, all three of these islands were named after the infamous pirate, cataloging his exploits for generations to come. Except a historian named Carl Bickel in 1942 was able to prove that not only is Sanibel not named for a fictional woman that a fictional pirate loved, but there's reason to believe that Gasparilla Island itself was not even named for Gaspar. Gasparilla Island is actually supposedly named, quote, for a Spanish missionary named Gaspar or Gasparillo, end quote. Some records even share that the island of Gasparilla was listed as such before Jose Gaspar even came to Florida's shores. Captiva, it seems, is the only island that may actually have received its name from Jose Gaspar's presence. Perhaps someday a historian will find an entirely different origin for the island's name, one that predates the terrible Gasparilla. But until then, the unfortunate origin remains. It always amazes me how stories, whether true or not, run parallel to each other. There are a dozen different variations of O Tannenbaum to celebrate organizations and regions around the world, just as there are many different crafts that brought Ybor City to life over the last century, just as there are myths of a pirate that spread across the origins of our East Coast, twisting the narrative of their true names. None of these stories or facts cancel each other out. They are merely threads to tie into the tapestry of our shared histories. They all can be true, in a sense. 
There is no place that quite illustrates the weird parallels of history like the Cross Florida Barge Canal, which is also called the Cross Florida Greenway. Two names for the exact same stretch of land, a scar and a corridor that connects a handful of tiny towns in the northern heart of central Florida. You begin in Yankee Town on the west coast, and you cut east towards the lost town of Santos. You swing north to Orange Springs and then carve along the northern border of the Ocala National Forest toward Palatka. It is a curse turned into a blessing, and we will explore its hidden natural hallways for two weeks in our season four finale, starting next week. Until then, if you're an Ebor, please get yourself some Cuban coffee and pastries from La Segunda. It's quiet out there nowadays, plenty of space for you to enjoy your time alone, so long as the chickens don't make it impossible. I find that being in places like Ebor or Sanibel or pretty much anywhere in Florida, there are stories that bring that place to life. When you're there, if you look hard enough, you can find yourself surrounded by histories and by the potential of tales yet to be told. Thank you so much for listening to this little episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you tuned in. If you're new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. If you have not listened to other episodes in Season 4 and you don't know anything that I'm talking about, you have to go back and listen to the episode about our state song, the episode about breweries in Ybor City, and the episode to celebrate our two-year anniversary about Sanibel Island. You don't need to go back to the beginning. Those three episodes are a great place to jump in. If you did enjoy this episode, please leave a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me that you tell me what you like about this show, especially as we head into Season 5. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. And if you want to follow my personal account on Twitter, I'm there at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much to my pal, Gabrielle Khaleesi from the Tampa Bay Times. I am so grateful that when I say, hey, do you want to talk about this story that you just wrote about? She is always like, yes, I'm game. I'll be there. She is an amazing writer. Go check out some of her work. There is a link below. And if you can, support local journalism and support local journalists like Gabrielle. Thanks to Lauren Nix for photography used on the social media channels. You can find more of her work at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Her last name, Nix, is spelled N-I-X. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their music at the link below. Next week is part one of the Cross Florida Barge Canal slash Greenway story. It's a big one. I've got multiple guests. I traveled all over the state for this episode. You are going to love it. Part one comes out in one week. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. Get yourself a cafe con leche while you have a second. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. <laughs>